The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 70. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with me your host, Connor Hanretty. Act 5, Scene 7, is neatly but kind of weirdly divided into not two but three little parts. These final scenes of the play have been growing shorter and shorter, the better to heighten the tension and chaos of the battle between Malcolm's forces and Macbeth. This scene almost feels like three increasingly short episodes that could be scenes themselves. The first has Macbeth's encounter with young Seward, and the second is what follows. We get more alarms, and now Macduff enters. This feels like an echo of the early portion of the play, when Macbeth and Macduff were introduced in a way that seemed to equate them and set them up as soldiers on parallel paths. This scene mirrors that, in that we've seen Macbeth enter alone, and now we have Macduff, who also enters alone as he searches for Macbeth. That way the noise is, Tyrant, show thy face. If thou beest slain, and with no stroke of mine, my wife and children's ghosts will haunt me still. I cannot strike at wretched kerns, whose arms are hired to bear their staves. Either thou, Macbeth, or else my sword, with an unbattered edge, I sheath again undeeded. There thou shouldst be, by this great clatter, one of greatest note seems bruited. Let me find him, fortune, and more I beg not. So, Macduff is spoiling for a fight. He's following the sounds of the battle, all these alarms that the stage directions are giving us, and he's hoping he will find Macbeth. Just as Seward did before his death, Macduff calls Macbeth tyrant, and lest he be in hiding nearby, he calls for him to show himself, or show his face. Macduff is worried that he will have missed his chance to fight Macbeth and avenge his murdered family. As he puts it, if Macbeth is killed and it's someone else who does the job, the ghosts of his wife and children will haunt him. They are his motivation here, and it's for their sake that he wants to be the one that kills Macbeth. Macduff continues and explains that it's only Macbeth that he wants to fight. He says he cannot strike at wretched kerns, the very same mercenaries that we heard of back in Act One, who were fighting for that merciless MacDonald. Macduff gives us a little image of them, saying that their arms are hired to bear their staves. These were wooden poles, a fairly rudimentary weapon that would have done immediate but fairly unsophisticated damage in a fight. Given that so many of the thanes have flown from Macbeth, it's no wonder that he's had to hire some help. We don't get any more information than this little nugget, but it's very telling. Macduff is dead set on his target. It'll be Macbeth alone that he will fight. Otherwise his sword, with an unbattered edge, will go back in its scabbard. He uses the word undeeded. His sword will do no battering and be involved in no other historic deeds until and unless he can kill Macbeth with it first. Most likely it was Shakespeare that coined the word undeeded, but it's a great glimpse into Macduff's desire to play his part on this historic day. Macduff keeps moving, listening for where Macbeth might be. He decides again to follow the sound of the battle. He hears a great clatter and assumes from it that one of greatest note 
presumably Macbeth, is being cheered or announced. Bruited or bruited is another old-fashioned word. The French for noise is bruit, b-r-u-i-t, and so by extension this word has a sense of noise and cheering. There thou shouldst be, by this great clatter, one of greatest note seems bruited. What's interesting about Macduff is that, despite his very high rank within these attacking forces, he has no desire for power. He has a very clear, focused reason for revenge, and this is all he wants. Before he exits, he prays to fortune, or good luck, that he can find Macbeth. This is all he wants, and he says so. Let me find him fortune, and more I beg not. He wants nothing else. And then he goes. Hot on his heels comes the third and shortest segment of the scene. It's laid out as a scene on paper. But of course, in performance, nobody is sitting and counting all these vignettes and episodes from the culminating act of the play. What's written on paper as Act 5, Scene 7, has the significant problem of the body of the slain young Seward. Who might clear it? Probably not Macbeth nor Macduff, since they are both so engaged in staying alive and hunting for their targets. But most likely someone needs to. Perhaps Ross, since now we are joined by Malcolm and old Seward, and absolutely no mention of the dead young man is made. It seems as though they are approaching the castle and possibly gaining entry to it. Seward is guiding Malcolm, as he says... This way, my lord, the castle's gently rendered. The tyrant's people on both sides do fight. The noble fanes do bravely in the war. The day almost itself professes yours, and little is to do. So the castle has surrendered, and has done so gently or nobly. For the third time in this scene, third again, Macbeth is called a tyrant, and old Seward explains that Macbeth's people are fighting on both sides. In other words, Macbeth's men are no longer fighting exclusively on his side. Still more of his forces are abandoning him and changing sides. One edition of the play that I've read gave a whole complicated note about how even here there's a sense of the equivocation that haunts the play. The tyrant's forces can't be trusted not to play both sides in this fight. The noble thanes, however, are doing bravely in the war. Seward presumably means that the noble thanes are the ones who were smart and brave enough to side with Malcolm and Macduff. The good news is that they've all but won. As Seward puts it, the day almost itself professes yours. They've just about won today. And there's little left to do other than take over the castle. Malcolm's response is quite equivocal and cryptic. He says, We have met with foes that strike beside us. This sounds like a paradox. Either it means that they have encountered enemy forces who have fought beside them, presumably on their side, or that they faced enemy forces who have struck but missed them, perhaps deliberately. It's a strange day either way, but if their foes don't appear to be invested in fighting them anymore, no wonder they are winning. Seward now guides Malcolm off, saying, Enter, sir, the castle. And with that, they leave the stage. From all their talk of their likely victory, and the way Macbeth's forces are abandoning him, they seem quite jolly and almost upbeat 
The day has mostly gone well. There's no way that old Seward can be seeing his son's body right now. It seems unthinkable that he wouldn't acknowledge it if he saw it in some way. So we must assume that a production needs to move that body before this final portion of the scene. For anyone approaching directing this play, solve this problem early so that you're not surprised by it in tech. Old Seward and Malcolm exit, as Macduff did before them, without a rhyming couplet to keep them moving. It's almost weirdly gentle, as though the entire approach has been too easy. The enemy forces didn't fight them, they've all but won the day, and it doesn't seem to have been too hard. Of course, poor old Seward will have to deal with the death of his son when he learns about it, and obviously we are now primed and ready for the showdown we've been waiting for throughout the play. Macbeth has to fight Macduff. He's been told to beware the Thane of Fife, and their fight will be the be-all and the end-all. Act 5, Scene 8 is the penultimate scene of the play, and we will cover it all in the penultimate episode of this series. I have to say, it's an incredibly exciting showdown, and I'm thrilled that it will be coming online on Christmas Eve, no less. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying these final episodes, and I will speak to you next time.